Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to first day of the Fiesta of Tabernacles. This is Pastor Tim of IsawTheRightMinistries.com. Thank you for waiting for us. Thank you for your patience. We're going to put on some worship music for this great festival and celebration of Jesus Christ. Now let's turn in our traditional worship music songbook to page number one, traditional worship music songbook, page number one, which is Glory to His Name.
like to ask everybody to please stand for prayer, please. Lord, Heavenly Father, praise your holy name. Worship you, Father, on this holy day, on this first day of the festival of Tabernacles. This day of celebration, this day of honor and respect, love towards you, on this anniversary of your birth, that you came into this world to die for our sins, be resurrected from the dead, and to take our place and our penalty for our guilt. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy that you have shown us your love that you have shown us, and for also for letting us go about this day. Thank you, Father, how you continue to keep us, lead us, and guide us in your love, in your mercy, and in your grace. We know, Father, that you're not willing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to everlasting life. Therefore, we ask, Father, that you would use us as your witnesses upon this earth, as your body, for as you have now ascended back into heaven, we now are your body upon this earth. We are the sons of God upon this earth. Be a light to the world. Witness, testify, and do everything you did in heaven with the same time, with the same authority, with the same message. So help us, Father, to find the same message that you did. You were on earth in this flesh. But you still are. Now in our flesh, dwelling and tabernacling among us. Help us to think about this this week, Lord. How you are tabernacling inside us. How you are inside our bodies. We, a lot of times, don't feel that. We feel so fleshly. We feel everything that we can see with our carnal eyes, the five senses of the flesh that you gave us in our good and our tough. But a lot of times, we get caught up in this world that we are having out in and to get to think about how you are dwelling in us. We need to take more time to feel your presence, hear your voice. So we ask you, Lord, to help us do that. These these eight days. We think also upon how you was homeless, how you left your home in heaven to dwell among the flesh, among the dirt of this earth, even though that you are heavenly and that you are God that cannot fit in any temple, not even in Mary or us, not fully, because you would consume us and we would die if all of you were then us. We do ask to be filled with what measure that we can be filled with. We ask, Lord, you help us to think about not only how you dwell in us, but also how you left your home to dwell 
among this land and among us? Are you humbled yourself, became flesh for us, set us an example to teach us, lead us, guide us? If you was our pastor on the earth, in the flesh for those 30 some years, help us to think about that how you had no place to lay your head, how you went and traveled many different places spreading your message of the kingdom of God. Help us to think about how the apostles, the disciples, the prophets of old, how they lived, how Israel used to live with no electricity. Electricity only is slightly over 100 years old, the way man uses it today. Yet thousands of years, for the most part, man has been without electricity. Now we are brain forged, programmed, spoiled through how man has corrupted it, misused it. We are flooded with the airwaves, signals through the air, all the filth that is traveling through the air, the brain waves and airwaves around us. We see the blood of Jesus over those airways around our minds, around our heads. We see the blood of Jesus over the water we drink, food we eat, the air we breathe, and the signals going through the air around us. We see the blood of Jesus over all those things, and no weapon from the answer to God. Help us, Father, to think about the people in China and Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran and Syria, and around the world that if they seek to truly serve you, or even just to know the name of Jesus, or even just to have a, a typical modern Babylonian belief in Jesus Christ, how all of that is forbidden in those nations. Help us think about that, Lord, how blessed we are here in the United States, regardless and despite the wicked administrations that the United States is under us, how still very blessed we are for this moment. Help us to take this festival as a time to think about how blessed we are, how we have received the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Ephraim through the bloodline that is represented in the United States. Help us to think about how we are all spiritual Israel, regardless of our color, regardless of our race, how we are spiritual Israel if we truly have the end. So much to think about, Lord. The eight days to it, that's good. Help us think about the homeless. Help us to think about the true evangelists that are in other nations and even in the United States. Help us to think about the traveling evangelists. Help us to think about those that are by themselves those that are wondering in the wilderness trying to find out where to meet and who to and what website to help us think about those, Lord. Help us place one another. May you be glorified in all that, Lord. Father, your help right now to have these services here around this picnic table and over the telephone and over the internet around the world, 
with us, Kiki and Jennifer and Melissa and Lance, Taylor, and anybody else that may be listening. Father, protect them and guard them and keep them warm and dry. Help them through the eight days, Lord, wherever they are, whether they're in a motel or a house, whether they're home or a different city or a different state or a different nation, we pray for divine protection and help, favor, grace, and mercy upon all your people that are truly trying for the search. Ask for deliverance for them from all the deceptions and deceptive groups people. Your guidance, guidance, leadership during this season forevermore without you. Just have your way in the service, Father, and be glorified in all of this. Please help us to understand, help us to hear and listen and understand. Help us not be distracted to you, your word, your truth, what you're trying to say to us. May we, our ears, our eyes, see and hear what the Spirit says to the church. Jesus, holy name. You're listening to the live services of I Saw the Light Ministries. I Saw the Light Ministries dot com, and today is the first day of the Fiesta of Tabernacles. Some people call it Feast of Tabernacles. Dukov or something like that, the Assyrian name. And um, Feast of Tabernacles, Festival of Tabernacles, and Sukkot. I'm going to start calling it Fiesta. That's the Spanish word or Latin. And even the word feast is Latin. And even the word festival is Latin. And Fiesta is Latin. Um, but to me, the word fiesta sounds more like a celebration because festival and feast, it might sound like a celebration to a lot of people, but to me, I don't know, I just get more out of the fiesta. I feel like God has laid this upon me in my mind, in my heart, the word fiesta. And plus it came to me today that by using the word fiesta rather than feast or festival, it can help draw all the Latin American people and the Gentiles of the Spanish language in Spain, Latin America, and the Mexicans, and so so many others. And I looked it up that Spanish is the number two largest speaking group of people on the planet, the number two largest language on the planet. The first is Chinese, and Spanish is second, and English is third. So by using a language that the Latin-speaking people, the Spanish-speaking people, recognize as being a word that they use for celebration. It can touch them in a special way. So, now, in the original Bible and in all the oldest manuscripts, we have 
feast and festival and fiesta. None of those words were in it. Not even feast, not even festival. Neither, none of these words were in it. The Greek word and the Syrian word, both, was totally different, not even close. But the Syrian, so-called Hebrew, and the Greek are words that nobody in the United States, unless she was born in Greece, unless she speak Greek fluently, you wouldn't recognize what it means. It would be a total bewilderment, total puzzle, total mystery what it means. And so people have translated the Syrian word and the Greek word into words that the English-speaking people do know what they mean. Because when you translate the Bible, you want to translate it in the language of the people for that community in words that they know, recognize, and understand what it means. So they translated it as feast is the traditional rendering. But feast, people can misinterpret that to be just a large meal. So festival is a more accurate, better translation. But festival, to me, is like, Autumn leaf festival, pumpkin festival, harvest festival, a circus, a, a, a town, a carnival. But fiesta to me says celebration. And by translating the Alpha and Omega Bible and putting fiesta in every place where it says feast or festival, by putting fiesta, it can reach the second largest language group on the planet, Chinese being first, in a special way, using words that they recognize and understand to reach that group. And the Latin group and the Mexicans are the are tremendously being evangelized by the Muslims. And even though the Catholic Church was the number one and still is the number one religion among Mexico, Islam is now being taught and evangelized and accepted and embraced by the Mexicans in record numbers and huge numbers. The Mexicans are really perverting to Islam very quickly, extremely quickly, in extremely large numbers. So I believe that we need to reach out to that group and reach them with the Alpha and Omega Bible. I really believe that God has put this word fiesta on me to be a step in that direction, to evangelize that group. Uh, Chinese being the largest speaking language on the earth, I would like to ask everybody to think about what Chinese word that a lot of Americans would know and recognize immediately. When you hear that Chinese word, you know what it means. But it has to be a word that I can find something in the Bible that actually is in the Bible that I can use that Chinese word for as a translation. For example, I did look up today Chinese words recognized 
by Americans or in the English language. And typhoon, like a hurricane, typhoon is a Chinese word, and people know what it means. But I don't know anywhere in the Bible where it says hurricane. So I can't use that. And the word tea, like you drink hot tea or cold tea, is a Chinese word because tea came from Asia. So tea is a Chinese word. But I don't know anywhere in the Bible right off where it talks about tea. So if anybody can think of a Chinese word that a lot of English-speaking people would recognize right off, they know what it is, but it's a Chinese word or a Chinese origin. But the Bible talks about that. Not that the Chinese word already appears in the Bible, no, but, or maybe it does, like the word chi, that's a Chinese word. So if it's in the Bible, it would already appear in the Bible. But not necessarily that it has to already appear in the Bible, but that there's a word in the Bible that could be translated into that Chinese word. So you have no one, maybe? Ni hao. Ni hao. Okay. 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 The only thing is, I think most Americans wouldn't recognize that, you know. So it has to be something that most Americans would immediately recognize automatically. Uh, so let's just just something to think about over the next uh, week or two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And if anybody has any suggestions, please feel free to email me. Because if we can get a Chinese word in the translation as well, but one that Americans recognize immediately, that would also help to reach the Chinese as well. So let's try to reach the first and the second largest language groups on the earth, English being the third. So we got English covered. <laughs> so praise God. So email me if anybody thinks of anything. Pray about it. Maybe God will lay up somebody's mind, heart about it. Let's turn to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and we're reading from the New American Standard Bible, New American Standard, but you're welcome to try to follow along the King James or whatever translation you may have there. And for those people that may be listening for the first time, the Bible translation I've been talking about, trying to cut the Spanish word in the Chinese, is the Alpha and Omega Bible. It's a translation that I'm working on, and uh, I don't know when it's going to be done. I keep, you know, saying it's going to be the next month, the next month, the next month. It's a large task, of course, but hopefully, hopefully, God willing, maybe by the end of February, I mean, uh, November, end of November, hopefully. No promises there. And the Alpha and Omega Bible will have in the, you can have the black and white edition for free, or you can order the color edition. And uh, the color edition will be available for free online. You can download the color edition for free, and you can ask for a black and white edition and receive a black and white edition for free. I'm not doing this for money, but if people want a color edition, they can purchase that themselves through Amazon and other places once it's done. But in the color edition, the words of God will appear in red all throughout Old Testament and New Testament both to help people realize 
you don't have one God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. But a lot of people think we do, literally. I've had people tell me, you serve the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God. There's one God. There's not two gods. So, uh, and Jesus and Paul constantly quoted the Old Testament. Paul, the New Covenant Gentile preacher, constantly quoted from the Old Testament. Another thing the Alpha and Omega Bible will have is all the, not all, but a lot of the quotations in the New Testament where they are quoting the Old Testament will be in blue. But if you get a black and white edition, it will be in a special font. So you can still see that this New Testament verse is a quotation of the Old Testament. So you will have in the black and white editions a special font for the Word of God, both in the Old and New Testament, and a special font for all the Old Testament quotations that you would find in the New Testament. Plus, it would tell you where in the Old Testament that it's quoted. It will even tell you that. And it will also be a study Bible that will give you notes, not on all of the verses, but on a lot of verses it will give you the notes talking about what that verse is really talking about, the history, the background, what the Greek words mean, what the Syrian word means, what the Hebrew word means, uh, so forth. Notes to help you understand. And it's going to be, I believe, I firmly, firmly believe, the most accurate translation that we've had in over 2,000 years, really over 2,300 years. I really believe that because if you study the history of the Bible, which it will show you the history of the Bible in the first few pages of the Alpha and Omega Bible, it would give you such and such translation came out in such and such year, so on, so on, so on. It would give you the history of the Bible. And when you look at the history of the Bible, how the Catholic Church and the Jews, and I got Jewish bloodline, so I'm not dishing anybody's race, but the Catholic Church and the Jews both added to and took away from the Bible. The Alpha and Omega Bible will also include what they call now the Apotica. But the Apotica was in the 1611 King James Version. It was there in the 1611 King James Version, the Apotica, those books, several books that were taken out in 1666, taken out. Still in some Bibles, but very few. And not only was it in 1611 King James, but those books, those several books that they call the Apotica now, was in the Greek Setudian translation, which is the translation that Paul read and quoted from. And was the translation that Jesus read and quoted from. It was the Bible of the first century church. The Bible of the first century church was the Greek Setudian, and it had those books in it that they took out in 1666. The Alpha and Omega Bible will include those books. So uh, people need to read all the scripture, all the scripture, including the scripture that was taken out. Amen. So please be praying about this. I just wanted to talk about that since I mentioned uh, particular words and so forth and the Chinese and so forth. 
Spanish language. Now, today is the first day of the Fiesta of Tabernacles, and this is the anniversary of the birth of Jesus Christ. If you go to the website at I Saw the Light Ministries.com, I Saw the Ministries.com, look for the article about the blood moons, how that the blood moons was of uh, whatever year, those two years, huh? 2015 was, it was two years, but it was the 2015 blood moons marked the exact time, not only the day, but the time of day that Jesus died and was born. Yeah. So if you looked up on the NASA.gov website and looked at the exact time of the blood moon lunar eclipse and then compared it with history and what we know from the Bible that he died, what time he died, what time he said his last words and so forth and and everything, it marked the exact time. That was the meaning of the blood moons. And everybody's hollering, the end of the world, the end of the world, Armageddon, it's the rapture. No. It was telling us the exact day and time that Jesus was born on one blood moon and died on the other blood moon and that he was born this day, this first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so I uh, encourage people to check that out at I Saw the Light Ministries. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles not only pictures the birth of Jesus Christ into this world, that he came to tabernacle among us, but it also pictures a lot of other things. It is so full of new covenant symbolic meaning about Jesus Christ and how he relates to us, how we relate to him. So much. It is such a full, uh, wonderful uh, festival. And not only is it a time of celebration, but a time to reflect upon Jesus Christ and to think about his salvational plan for us, the New Covenant Church, and for the whole world. How he came not just to save the English, but he came to save the Chinese and the Spanish, the Mexicans, the Russians, and, and all the earth. He's not willing for any man to perish. The book of Revelation says that about paradise, it says when we get to the new heaven and earth, it says that there will be a great multitude of every language, of every tribe, of every nation that was washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. How is that possible if we stick with 1611 Old English? We have to branch out in other translations. If you go by King James only, then you have to throw away all the Spanish translations. You have to throw away the Chinese translations. You have to throw away all the other translations. If you go by King James 1611, I don't serve King James. He was a wicked man. And I don't serve and worship a Bible that's named after a wicked man. Who names a Bible after themselves? A vain and prideful man. Amen. But what I want to really get into today on this sermon is how the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the thousand-year millennium. That's one of the many things it pictures. The thousand-year millennium. When Jesus Christ comes to this earth, Jesus is going to stay on this earth forever, not just for a thousand years, but 
But the Bible breaks it down into a thousand years, and then a hundred years, and then the new heavens and new earth, eternity. But we're going to focus today on that first 1,000-year millennium, first thousand years of God's kingdom upon this planet. So in Revelation 19, leading up to his return, Revelation 19 talks about the last 42, 41 and a half, up to 45 days before he actually lands on the earth. Revelation 19, verse 1, New American Standard says, After these things, I, talking about John, heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. That word multitude needs to be translated a great number of people in heaven, saying, says hallelujah, but that needs to be translated praise G or El Eluji. El Eluji is what they actually are saying. It's what John actually wrote. It's what John actually heard was El Eluji. So that's a very poor translation of hallelujah because hallelujah means praise Yah, which is the Islamic uh, moon god, which they used to call Yah. Some Muslims still call him Yah, but it's more known today as Allah. Uh, the word El Eluji is E L E L U J E. Let me say it one more time in case I got it wrong the first time. E L E L U J E. And so El Eluji comes from the word eulogy, which eulogy we think of English as a funeral thing. But that's not what it really, really means. El Eluji means the Greek word is uh, uh, eulogy is a Greek word. And it means a speech of praise, a speech of honor, a speech of respect. Uh, a speech of worship. Uh, and so it's the Greek word for blessing. When the Bible says that they say bless and, and, and uh, honor unto the king over and over throughout the book of Revelation, it's Elelugia, Elelugia, from which we get Elelugi uh, or Elegy. And the only thing is, is adding the word G for Jesus on the end of that. So it's combining two words. It's combining the root word of eulogy and with the word G for Jesus. It's praise Jesus, a speech, a praise, a speech of honor and respect and honor for Jesus. Uh, so that's how it should be translated as Eluji, or if you wanted to translate that Greek word of Eluji, which actually is older than Greek. It's actually a true Hebrew word. But the Greeks adopted the Hebrew language thousands of years ago. The Greek people do not speak their native tongue. They adopted the original Hebrew tongue. So what people speak Greek today, which today is a modern version of it, of course, but nevertheless, the root of the Greek language that people use today and that the New Testament was written in came from Paleo-Hebrew. So when we say Eluji is a Greek word, what we're saying is it's an agent, pale Hebrew word, really, 
So now, hallelujah is not a Hebrew word, nor a Greek word. Hallelujah is a Syrian word. So, people in heaven are not speaking Assyrian. People in heaven are not speaking the Assyrian language. And for anybody that is listening for the first time, no matter how ridiculous this sounds, you will see the president of Syria being the Antichrist, claiming to be God. And so all this that the Jews, who do not worship Jesus Christ, but they worship the Assyrian and the Muslims, who do not worship Jesus Christ, but they worship the Assyrian. So the Jews and the Catholics have added a Assyrian praise to their Assyrian god, the Antichrist. But people are not speaking Assyrian in heaven. They're speaking Hebrew, if anything. And so, anyway, it's to say, praise G, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because, verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous. Uh, for he has judged the great harlot, talking about all false religion, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. Remember, immorality is one of the sins that keeps you out of heaven and out of the kingdom. <clears throat> and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time, he said, Eliluji, her smoke rises up forever and ever, which means that she is permanently and forever destroyed. That smoke is not literally going to rise forever because in paradise, you're not going to have any memory. When I say paradise, I'm talking about new heaven and new earth. Paradise is a Greek word that means garden, and it was the Greek word for the Garden of Eden in the Greek Setudian. In the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used, it didn't say Garden of Eden, it said Paradise of Eden. So it's the Garden of Eden after the earth is restored to its former state, before the curse came upon the earth, we're going to be restored to the Garden of Eden or the Paradise of Eden all across the world, on the entire earth, the Paradise of Eden will be restored. And there will be no smoke, and there will be no pain and the crying and the torture and the curse. So we're not literally going to see the smoke rise forever and ever. It just means permanently is what it should be translated as that her smoke ascended, it's done, it's done, it was done. It's a permanent punishment, but it doesn't last forever. Verse 4, and the 24 elders, which I believe are angels, and the four living creatures, which were definitely angels, fell down and worshipped Theos. It used to say Theos means the Alpha and Omega. Theos is an agent pale Hebrew word, not Greek. It is Greek, but that means pale Hebrew. That means the Alpha and Omega. Who sits on the throne? Who sits on the throne? We saw it yesterday in the scripture. Jesus is in the middle. It said so. And so the throne saying, Amen, El Eluji. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to Theos, God, the Alpha and Omega, all you, his bond servants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of many pearls of thunder, saying, El Eluji. For the Lord our God, the Almighty. Who is the Almighty? It says it two or three times that Jesus says, I am the Almighty. Here it calls him God. God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb, who is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. 
has come, and his bride, who is the bride, it is us, has made herself ready. We're getting ready. It was given to her, the church, us, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous works or the righteous acts. We're not saved by those works. We're not saved by those acts. But we are called to good works. That is exactly what the Bible says. We are called to good works. That is a quotation of the Scriptures. So all these people that are fighting, saying that we're not supposed to do any work, you can just be a couch potato Christian and not feed the poor and not help nobody and not do anything righteous and good, they are deceivers and wolves in sheep clothing. And you get away from those people. But we're going to be clothed with the righteous act of the saints. We are called saints in the Bible. That's what we need to become. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that, for I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Not of Buddha, not of Allah, not of Yeshua, of Jesus, and that's what it exactly said in the original scriptures was Jesus. Worship God. Worship who? Worship Jesus because he is what this is all about. The testimony of Jesus. Worship him. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Why do people out there speaking against prophecy when Jesus is the spirit of prophecy? All these people say apostles are done away with. There's no such thing as apostles. There's no such thing as prophets. It's what a lot of people are teaching. That's totally contrary to the scriptures. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This is not the same white horse as Revelation 6, because Revelation 6 are demons. The white horse, the black horse, the red horse, the green horse, those are demons, fallen angels. This is a different horse. This is a horse that Jesus rides on, so it's not a demon. So I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him, Jesus, is also called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges. Amen. Jesus does judge. He is the judge, and he wages war. He had not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's Jesus' own words. Think not that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. I've heard people say, I don't know how many times in my life, that Jesus never said a bad word against anyone, never spoke against anyone, never condemned anyone, never judged anyone, uh, uh, never got angry, all this. What about when he took the whips and ran them out of the temple and overthrew the tables? That is pretty angry. And he called people snakes and vipers straight to their face and hypocrites over and over and over to their face. They don't read the whole Bible. They got a false image of Jesus. They coming to wage war, and we're coming with him. Verse 12, his eyes were a flame of fire. He is a consuming fire, the Bible says. He is the lake of fire. And on his head are many diamonds, which are crowns, in verse 12 there. That can be translated as crowns. And he has a name written, which that should say title. 
written on him, which no one knows except himself. Well, it might be name in that verse, perhaps, but in the following verses, it should say title. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, spiritually, symbolically. You're not actually going to see Jesus covered with blood. This is symbolically. And his name or title is called the Word of God. That's not a name. That's a title. Verse 14, and the armies, us, which are going to be in heaven at the seventh trumpet, read about the seventh trumpet. If you want to know when Jesus comes back, if you want to know if it's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, after-tribulation, read about the seventh trumpet. Read about the seven seals and how in the seventh seal there are seven trumpets. Read about the resurrection of the dead and the catching up of the saints of God for the marriage supper of the Lamb of God at the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet. It's very clear. I don't see how anybody can get confused about it. Seventh trumpet is when we are called up at the end of the seventh seal, which is the seventh trumpet. And it says that uh, verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him, Jesus, on white horses. If we make it in the first resurrection, we're going to come down with him as the army of God, all of us riding white horses in the sky, coming down to the earth as an army. We're not coming down, just floating down uh, all on our own. We are going to be riding spiritual white horses, probably with wings. And it's going to be a great multitude, a great, 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 great multitude of saints in white linen on white horses following the captain of hosts, Jesus Christ. There's a great army coming down to fight, to wage war against the Islamic communist armies that have gathered in the valley of Megiddo at Armageddon. We're not coming down to make peace. And Jesus is not coming down to make peace as far as that particular day. Now, yeah, we're going to usher in peace in the following days as we continue to conquer the enemy and put the enemy under our feet. That peace will be brought about. But that first day, that day that Jesus comes and that day that we come down with him, it's going to be a lot of bloodshed. It's going to be war. But we're going to win that war. We are the army of God. We will win that war. There's no possibility that we could lose. We are the army of God. Verse 15. From his mouth, Jesus, comes a sharp sword. You're not actually literally going to see a sword coming out of his mouth. This is symbolic for the word of God. And so they... With it, the Word of God, with his voice, even as he spoke creation into existence, he will also speak and strike down these people, the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He ain't coming back to rule with candy and kisses. He's coming back to rule with a rod of iron. And he threads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. He is coming back with anger. He is coming back with anger down upon this earth. 
verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh symbolically has a title written. And we may actually see this, perhaps, on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, if he's King of Kings, there's no king above him. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when you see the word Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament, who is Lord? Jesus is. The Bible says Jesus is Lord. Quotation, Jesus is Lord. So we don't have two gods. We have one God. But now when he came through Mary, he did put part of himself, and he kind of just went into two parts, but he's still one being, one spirit, one soul, one person. Not two persons, not three persons, not two souls, not three souls. One soul, one spirit, one person, one head. But when he came into the flesh as a graven image of himself and went back to heaven, there are now the Father and the Son both looking at one another, talking to one another. That's very, very, very clear in Scripture, extremely clear in Scripture. But those are not two people. Those are two parts of himself, just like I have my flesh and my soul. And I also have a left arm and a right arm. But I am not two people. It's two parts of himself. But when we get to paradise, new heaven and new earth, the Bible says in the last verses of 1 Corinthians 15 that he will be whole again. That he will come back, those two parts will be made one part and we will only see one. He will be made whole again is the correct translation of 1 Corinthians 15, the last few verses. Verse 17 here says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds, the raptures, if you want to be raptured out, here is where it does talk about the rapture, saying to all the raptor birds, which fly in the mid-heaven, come and assemble for the great supper of God. That's not the marriage supper. This is a different supper. This supper is where wicked people, on the day of the battle of Armageddon, as they are being slain in the battlefield at Megiddo, outside Jerusalem, that the raptor birds come and take them away by eating their flesh. So if you want to be raptured out, now we're going to be called out, but we're not going to be raptured out. We're called out at the blowing of the seventh trumpet after the tribulation. But at the end of that, we come down and we destroy the enemy their bodies lay in the field in the ghetto, and the birds come and eat them. And verse 18, so that you, the birds, the raptor birds, may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sat on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast, Assad, and if you read an Arabic Bible, it actually has Assad's real last name here for the word beast. Uh, now, Assad is not his true last name because his grandfather changed the family name many, many years ago, decades ago. But before they changed the family name to Assad, whatever the Arabic word was, which I can't pronounce, but the Arabic word is the word for beast. So if you read this in Arabic, it would have his real last name here. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast, Assad, president of Syria, was seized, and with him the false prophet, which are both popes, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, which is Islam, and those who worshipped his image, whatever that may be. And these two talk about Assad and both popes. The reason it says two and not three is it's talking about two groups. And the Greek works like that. You don't have to have the exact number of individuals. The Greek phrase in here is talking about two groups. One, Assad, and the other group being both popes. Because both popes is the false prophet. Because remember, Revelation 13 says the false prophet has two horns. Well, if you look at what Daniel saw, and you look at what John saw, the ten horns are ten leaders. We know that. There's no debate. There's no fuss. There's no argument. Everybody on earth almost believes and understands and agree in unity that ten horns is ten kings, ten presidents, ten leaders. And everybody also agrees that one horn of the little horn in Daniel is one king. So if one horn is one king and ten horns is ten kings, then how come two horns is not two horns? I mean, come on now. Two horns of the false prophet is two kings. And so... Those are the popes, because the pope, both popes are kings. And Pope Benedict still wears his pauper ring, and he still has the title of pope, and he still lives in the Vatican. So we got two popes for the false prophet. So the false prophet is seen as one, but they are two men, two kings. All right? So they were all thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Now the rest of the people were killed with the sword, the word of God, which came out of the mouth of him, Jesus, who sat on the white horse, and all the birds, the raptors, were filled with the flesh of the wicked men. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, in that hand of the angel. Verse 2, and that angel lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, which is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, he's only bound for a thousand years. He's not bound for all eternity yet. So why have we never been taught that by any church, by any religion, by any denomination? How come people don't teach you? Maybe some, but very few. That Satan will be bound for only the first thousand years, while Jesus is on earth for the first thousand years. There's something very, very, very special about the thousand years. Even though there's going to be eternity with Jesus on earth, the first thousand years is set apart. And this Feast of Tabernacles pictures the birth of Jesus, how he dwells in our flesh, and how we are dwelling in this flesh temporarily, but also pictures that thousand years, millennium. Whereas the eighth day of the feast, which is actually a separate festival all on its own, the last great day, pictures paradise, new heaven, new earth. But the first seven days pictures the thousand years. All right? So then verse 3, And he threw him, the devil, into the abyss, the bottomless pit, and shut it up, sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until, yep, the devil will deceive again. 
I come nobody teaches you that the devil will deceive again. It says right here that he won't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And then you compare Isaiah 65, verse 20. Isaiah 65, verse 20. You can write that down and check it out later. It says 100 years. It's the same time frame, the short time. And 100 years is a short time compared to, the, to that thousand years and compared to eternity. So that short time of 100 years comes in between the millennium and eternity. And so compared to what comes before and what comes after it is a short time, 100 years. Now, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them, those who had been beheaded, because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, which is Islam. It is not a tattoo. It is not a microchip. It is not a credit card. It is not a coin. It is not a dollar bill. It is spiritual. You're not going to see, I promise you, I promise you in the name of Jesus Christ, you are not going to see anybody walking around with 666 in their forehead. John is seeing a spiritual vision. You're not going to see a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. This is a symbolic language. We have to be spiritual people and think spiritually. And if you let the Bible interpret itself, it says over in Deuteronomy, you can go to the website and check it up, or in the Strong Concordance and check it up on it. But it says in Deuteronomy, and I believe in Leviticus, yeah, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, several places, that the Ten Commandments and the Holy Days are on our forehead and in our hand. So if we have, and also the name of God, the Bible says, if the name of God, Jesus, is in our forehead, and the Ten Commandments is in our forehead, and the Festival of Tabernacles is in our forehead and in our hands, is that a tattoo? No. Is that a microchip? No. Is that a currency? No. It is spiritual worship. If, you go, if later on sometime, Revelation 13, talking about uh, the uh, beast and the false prophet, how the whole world will worship the Antichrist, the beast. It has the word worship, I think, five times, the different phrases of worship, like worship, worshiping, worshipped. However, the phrases of worship five times. And that is the chapter where it says that people would take the mark of the beast. It don't say nothing about currency, but it says worship, 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 worship. It is a form of worship. And so we worship God. But the people who follow the Assyrian Antichrist will have Assyrian worship. Assyrian worship is opposite of true worship. We keep the seventh day. We keep the fiesta of tabernacles and Passover and days of unleavened bread. But the Assyrians keep Christmas and Easter and other Catholic holidays that came from Assyria. Now, 
If you don't believe what I just said, I don't expect you to believe me. I don't want you to believe me. I would like for you to go to the library and look up in the encyclopedias and the books of history and the writings of history and do your own research of where did Christmas and Easter come from? How did it come to people who believe in Jesus? Who did they get it from? How did they celebrate it? Where did they celebrate it? Why did they celebrate it? And you will find it came from Nimrod and his children, his grandchildren. It came from Assyria. Christmas and Easter is Assyrian. And the president of Syria is the only Muslim leader, head of state in the world, that does keep Christmas and Easter and believes in the Trinity. So he is the only leader in the world that can get the Catholics, the Baptists, the Pentecostals, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims, and everybody together and blend it into one world religion because his religion is a mixture of Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Catholicism and Protestantism and Islam and all these, all mixed in one. He is truly the only head of state in the world that has that well of a blend of all religions. He believes in reincarnation like the Buddhist does and Hindus does. He has Hindu symbols and Buddhist symbols and Catholic symbols and so forth. Uh, anyway, you can check that out on the website I Saw the Light Ministries. But notice here in verse 4 that I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of them who died. They were beheaded. These are saints who died in the great tribulation because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received this mark on their forehead, which is false worship of Christmas and Easter and Assyrian holidays and, uh, and all the laws and commandments of the Assyrian Antichrist that he would bring to pass Islam on their hand. And they came to life, those that did not take part in those things. The saints of God came to life at the seventh trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15.52. 1 Corinthians 15.52 says, at the last trumpet, the last trumpet, not the first, not the second, not the third, and not before the trumpets, but the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, that come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead, those that don't make it in the first resurrection, all, everybody that's ever lived in all of human history, all the way from Adam and Eve, even those people that died in Noah's flood, everybody has ever lived in all of human history who do not make it in the first resurrection will rise in the second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. They don't say some of them, but it says the rest of them, which remain, which means all of the rest of them came to life. At the second resurrection, it's talking about, even though it don't use the word second resurrection, we know that it's talking about a second resurrection because we know the saints that make it in at the seventh trumpet is the first resurrection, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were completed. Then they do live again. They do get resurrected again. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first Resurrection. If there's a first resurrection, isn't there a second? If it says first resurrection, then 
Hello, there is a second resurrection. All right, so blessed is though that comes in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death have no power. If there's a second death, there's also a second life of the hundred years when the devil is let loose out of the bonus pit to go deceive the nations again. Who is he going to deceive? He's not going to deceive the saints who already turned to spirit, who have already married Jesus Christ and have come back down to the earth to reign on earth. He's not going to deceive the saints. So he, the devil, goes out to deceive the nations again of those flesh and blood people that have risen from the dead. And we know it's a flesh and blood resurrection in the second resurrection because Ezekiel, uh, let me just get you the right chapter number, Ezekiel 36 or 37 talks about the physical flesh and blood resurrection, Ezekiel 37. The chapter of Ezekiel 37 describes that physical flesh and blood resurrection. It says that bone will come back upon bone and segment upon segment and flesh back back on the bone and everything. So God will resurrect people and give them a brand new body in the flesh. In that second resurrection, they live 100 years because Isaiah 65 says there will no longer be an infant of days nor an old man, a sinner, that has not lived out his days. That's never been fulfilled before. So I'm touching a lot of different things. So I'm going to touch more on the thousand years right now. I'm going to uh, narrow it down to a thousand years because this is very complex, very, you know, we can talk about a lot of different things here. And that's more for a deeper study into a lot of different things. You can study it on the website and study it in your own Bible. So anyway... Now, those people that rise in the second resurrection, they can't die in the second death. The only people that can die in the second death is only the people that rose in the second life, the second uh, resurrection. That is not reincarnation. It is resurrection. Amen. There's a difference between reincarnation and resurrection. We're talking about resurrections. We're not talking about reincarnation. So resurrection is God brings dirt together from the ground and breathes into you and makes you a new man just like Adam and Eve were made, exactly the way Adam and Eve was made. He's going to gather the dirt from the ground and probably with whatever remains you have and other dirt and breathe life into you. That is not being born of a woman like the reincarnation theory so it's completely different. And only those people can die the second death at the lake of fire, at the white throne judgment, a hundred years later. And it says that they, uh, those that rose in the first resurrection, on which the second death have no power, they, the first resurrection people, will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So as we start talking about the thousand years, you can picture during the thousand years, everybody that made it in in the first resurrection are living on earth with Jesus Christ for that thousand years. That's one thing we have to understand about the thousand years and about the Feast of Tabernacles is it's picturing a time 
when the spiritual saints of God who have made it into the kingdom are going to be living and reigning, says we'll reign with him, that means they're going to be part of the government. We are kings and priests, the book of Peter says. We are kings and priests, so we're going to be reigning a government. Now, if there is a government, a kingdom on earth, and a king on earth, and minor kings under him, then there must also be subjects of that kingdom. If we're going to reign, we've got to reign somebody. So there's going to be flesh and blood people who survived the Great Tribulation, and I'm going to give you the scriptures for it here in a minute. Flesh and blood, 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 blood. flesh and blood people who will survive the Great Tribulation and survive the wrath and continue to live even after Jesus comes back, continue to live in the flesh in their first body until they die out. I don't know if they're still going to be given birth or not, but they would die sometime in that millennium, and we will be reigning over the flesh and blood remnants of the earth that survived. So regardless of how bad it's going to be in the Great Tribulation and the wrath, it's not going to be total annihilation of the human race. It's not going to be. Because Matthew 24 says that unless those days were cut short, that there should be no flesh left alive. But for the elect's sake, he will cut those days short, which does not mean he's going to be less than three and a half years. It can't mean that because then that would make the Bible contradict itself. There's got to be three and a half years. We're promised three and a half years of great relations. So it's not going to be less than three and a half years. But cut short in Matthew 24 means put an end to. So regardless of the nuclear war, regardless of everything that man is doing and all the battles of World War III, Russia and China fighting Israel and the United States and so forth, before we completely annihilate all human race, Jesus will step in and come back. That seventh trumpet will blow. Those that are ready will be called up. We'll be in heaven 41 and a half days, up to 45 days. Then on the 1,335th day, Daniel 12, we will come down on the earth at the day of the battle of Armageddon. And we will reign the survivors, ruling righteously, not, uh, not being mean to them, not, not that they will be our slaves, but we will teach them about Jesus Christ and it will be a righteous and true and good government. Now, verse 7 talks about the 100 years, which we're not going to talk about right now. We're going to focus on the 1,000. So let's go to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 over in the Old Testament. Very, very, very close to the end of the Old Testament. It's the next to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, verse 1. 
Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, all capitals, which means G. The original word there was J-E-H, but the H is silent. So you would say G as in Jesus. When the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is talking about the great tribulation. and the invasion of Israel. So where do I get the prophecy that's on the website that Israel will be invaded? Here's one of the verses, but there's other ones as well. Ezekiel 38 is another place. Revelation 12, verse 2 is another place. So all these people that are saying that Nobody will ever invade Israel ever again, even though they've been invaded over and over and over and over throughout history. They're very ignorant of history and of Scripture. Yes, they will be invaded. It says so right here. If I will gather all the nations, not just one nation, not just two nations, it's going to, Ezekiel 38 lists that Persia, which is Iran, will be one of those nations. Iran is a very huge powerful nation. Americans don't realize how powerful Iran is. Russia and China will be part of it as well. And I don't know about Turkey, but I believe so. And others. Many nations. So it's not just going to be one or two. So it don't matter how powerful the Israeli Air Force is, they're going to be outnumbered, plus it's ordained to happen. So it didn't matter even if it was only one nation coming against them. It's ordained to happen. And it says, and the city will be captured. So all these people are saying, yeah, Ezekiel 38 does talk about invasion. Attempt, people say. They say it's just an attempt. But God's going to give Israel immediate victory. They don't say that. It says right here that the city will be captured. That don't sound like God has given Israel the victory. The city will be captured. And Revelation 12, verse 2 says that the holy city will be tread under a foot for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. So where do they get that God will give Israel immediate victory? That's totally contrary to the scripture. So the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and women ravished, and half of the city exiled, meaning taken away as prisoners of war. Half of the population of Jerusalem will be deported into Iran, into Syria, into China and Russia as slave labor. This could be another holocaust. It's going to be another Holocaust. But the rest of the people, the other half of the city, will not be cut off from the city. They're going to still be there. Half of the population of Jerusalem will be there, but they'll be under captivity and probably still under slave labor within the town. Now, that's talking about 
the invasion and what it's going to be like. But then verse 3 moves into the future. Starting in verse 3 moves into a projection of the future of three, uh, let's see, how many days? 1,290 days. No, wait a minute. No, not 1290. Plus 1260 plus 45. 1335? 1305. 1305. Okay. So, uh, 1,335 days later, verse 3. 1,335 days later, verse 3 says, Then the Lord will go forth, Jesus will go forth, and fight against those nations. That is the battle of Armageddon. That's the what I've been telling you about over in Revelation, that we'll come down with him in a war, that he will fight those nations, Russia, China, Iran, so forth, as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, on the day of battle Armageddon, the day that Jesus returns with us on white horses, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is not appearing halfway in the sky, like a lot of people are teaching. This is him coming all the way down to the ground, and actually his feet will actually stand on the earth, on the Mount of Olives, not on the Temple Mount, not on the Temple Mount but on the Mount of Olives, where the Mount Olive sermon was given, of Matthew 24. That's where he taught Matthew 24, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives was split in the middle because God just landed. Now, the Mountain of Olives is not going to split with just a prophet standing there or just a man's man of God standing there so this right here proves that Jesus was God. It ain't going to split just because of a prophet. And it was split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley. So it's not just going to be a minor crack either. It's going to split by miles. A very large valley. So the half of the mountain will move through the north and the other half toward the south. Verse 5 and you will flee by the valley of my mountains. People's going to run for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azal. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, Jesus, will come, and all the holy ones with him. That's what Revelation 19 talks about, the army of the Lord coming with the Lord on white horses. So we do get caught up, but not before the tribulation, but only at the seventh trumpet. We're only up in heaven, only 41 and a half days, maybe up to 45 days. Now, verse 6 starts talking about another, a different time frame. Starting in verse 6, it starts talking about projecting even farther into the future of a thousand and one hundred years later, one thousand one hundred years after Jesus and us comes back 
after the great white throne judgment, after the lake of fire, or after the devil is destroyed, after all the demons are destroyed, all the wicked people are burnt in the lake of fire, and they have been annihilated from existence. And we are now in the new heaven and new earth, which is the eighth day of the feast, the last great day of the feast, represents new heaven and new earth. So starting in verse 6, it starts talking about new heaven and new earth, 1,100 years later. Verse 6, in that day, there will be no light. Revelation, Revelation, the book of Revelation, talks about that, either chapter 21 or chapter 22 or both. There'll be no light, and the luminaries, talking about the sun and the moon and the stars, will dwindle as far as light, shining light down upon the earth. Verse 7, for it will be a unique day, which is eternity. That's why it calls the last great day represents eternity. But this ain't just one day, it's eternity. Which is known to the Lord, and there'll be neither day or night, well, it'll be day all the time, according to the book of Revelation. But there will be no night. But it will come about that it, what would usually be evening time, that there will still be light. So you're not going to have a rising and setting of the sun. Because God will be on earth in the fullness of himself. He will no longer be split in two parts like he is right now. But he will be made whole again, 1 Corinthians 15. And... That his unfeathered, unheld back, unhindered presence of the lake of fire upon the earth, where we will dwell and live with him, that his brilliance of light, we won't need a sun anymore. And verse 8 In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, talking about Jesus Christ. This is not talking about a river that we actually could go and put our feet in, even though there may be something like that. But what it's really talking about is Jesus. He said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. He said that on the last day of the feast, the eighth day. That this is what this is representing. In the day of the living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the east, eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea, and it will be summer, and so it will be in the summer as well as in winter. But there actually won't be winter. It's saying what it means is when it would usually be winter, just like when it usually would be evening. But you ain't going to have no evening, and you ain't going to have no winter. Because we're not going to freeze to death or worry about turning up the heat. You know, His brilliance of the sun of God, which is the manifestation of God, there ain't going to be no night. There ain't going to be the coolness of, or the coldness of the nighttime. And verse 9, and the Lord will be the king over all the earth. Who's the king of kings? Jesus. The Lord, not a Lord. The Lord, all capitals. Lord of lords. This proves Jesus is God. He is the king. The Lord will be king. I couldn't count the number of verses that proves that Jesus is God. It's throughout the scriptures. Amen. Over all the earth. Are we going to be in heaven forever? No. Heaven is not our home. Matthew 5 quotes, is it Isaiah or Psalms? 
that Matthew 5, Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says that the meek shall inherit the earth. He never said the meek will inherit heaven. We'll go there for the marriage supper. We'll go there for our white robes. We go there for our battle instructions. We go there for the white horses. But then we come down with Jesus. Jesus is not even going to be in heaven forever. He's going to dwell right here on the earth, it says. His feet is going to land on this earth. And it says in that day the Lord will be king over the earth, and in that day the Lord will be only one, and his name only one. Two? No. Three? No. He's going to be the king, the only king. But notice how it says, in that day he will be one. It's kind of like a prophecy of the two manifestations that we now know coming back together. Because it don't say he is one, even though other verses says he is one. But this kind of word is a little bit different, like he's going to become one again, like he's going to be made whole again. And his name one. Verse 10, all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ribbon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of uh, Hananel to the wine, king's wine crest. And people will live in it forever in paradise, new heaven, new earth. And there will no longer be a curse. That comes from Revelation 22, verse 3. Revelation 22, verse 3. There will no longer be a curse. For Jerusalem would dwell in security. So that's a picture of new heaven, new earth, pictured by the eighth day of the feast. Now verse 12 starts talking about coming back to the day of Armageddon, the day that we actually arrive on earth with Jesus Christ. So we just talk about new heaven, new earth. Now verse 12 goes back to the actual day that Jesus and we come back to the earth, which begins the millennium. And it begins a thousand years as we come back down to the earth and a thousand years begins. Verse 12 through 15 talks about the thousand years and the very day that Jesus comes back. It's actually talking about the battle of Armageddon is what it's talking about. Verse 12 to 15 talks specifically about the day of the battle of Armageddon. The day of the battle of Armageddon. Verse 12, now this will be the plague. Remember in the wrath, there are seven plagues poured down upon the earth. And the last plague, the seventh plague, will be poured out on the very day that Jesus comes back. The seventh plague of the seven vows of the wrath of God. The plague is talking about the last plague, the last vow of the wrath of God. This will be the plague which the Lord, Jesus, will strike. Remember, he comes back with a sword in his mouth. He will strike all the people who have gone to war against Jerusalem. At the beginning of the tribulation? No. Only at the battle of Armageddon. And their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongue will rot in their mouth. So many websites says this is nuclear war. It is not nuclear war. 
This is the presence of Jesus Christ, striking them with the word of his mouth. We've got to stop giving glory to science and trying to explain things away. Well, this is such and such. It is the coming of Jesus Christ. That is what this is. It ain't no missile. It ain't no nuclear bomb. This is God. This is this proves that Jesus is God. Amen. This proves that Jesus is God. Who strikes them? Does it say Russia? Does it say China? Does it say Israel? Does it say United States? Who strikes? It says the Lord will strike. Is Jesus going to come and push a nuclear uh, button? Is Jesus going to come and push a button and fire a missile? Then it's not a nuclear explosion, is it? Thank you, God, for giving me all this stuff. I'm learning as I speak what he gives me. In verse 13, it will come about in that day that a great panic from G will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another, and Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. So even though Jesus is coming down, and he's striking and killing the people, but at the same time, the, the physical flesh and blood humans are waging war with one another at the same time. And Judah will fight at Jerusalem against the Russians, Chinese, and the Iranians. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered after the battle is done. The wealth of the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague of the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. So in other words, that last plague that strikes the enemy will strike not only the humans, but also the animals that belong to the wicked. It's not talking about that he's going to come back and destroy uh, our donkeys and our animals and our pets. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying the wicked people, their animals, will be destroyed with them. Them and their property will be destroyed. Then verse 16 starts talking about the thousand years. So again, verse 12 to 15 is the very day Jesus comes to start the thousand years. And then starting in verse 16 is actually talking about the thousand years. From verse 16 to the rest of the chapter, it's talking about the thousand years. Now, remember, we read yesterday that all of this is elementary stuff. All of this is elementary stuff. So we're going to get all of this understood today, and and if need be, we'll talk about it some more. I've, I've read this a million times, but we'll keep talking about it until it's like, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. 
But this is supposed to be elementary stuff, stuff that even the new the new convert should be taught within the, like the first month about the resurrection and the judgment and the rewards and everything that is to come. Now, verse 16, then it will come about that any who are left, the survivors of the tribulation and of the wrath, any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year, every year, to worship the king, the Lord, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that Jesus, and Jesus will be worshipped, it says. Who's the king and the Lord? Revelation 19 says, the king of kings, Lord of lords, is Jesus Christ. They're going to worship Jesus. This proves Jesus is God. The Lord of hosts. And to celebrate the fiesta of tabernacles. The word booths here is the word for tabernacles. It is the word for tabernacles. Now, who's going to who's going to uh, celebrate the fiesta of tabernacles? Just the Jews? No. Those that waged war against Jerusalem, it says. It says all those who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem. These are Gentiles. These are not Jews. The Jews ain't going to invade Jerusalem. Wow. These are Iranians, Russians, Chinese, people from Turkey, Gentiles, ex-Muslims. All those that remain left of the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the festival, the fiesta of tabernacles. And it will be that whichever of the families, bloodlines of the earth that does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. In other words, there will still be sin even after Jesus comes back. Have you ever heard that before? There will still be rebellion. You've got God on earth. I know. People are so stupid. Let's just say it the way it is. God on earth. They saw all the great tribulation. They saw the wrath. Well, remember, they crossed the Red Sea, and they saw water on their right side, water on the left side, and they crossed on dry ground across the Red Sea. They saw the Egyptians swallowed up by the water. They saw manna and quail. And still, the people sinned and rebelled and did not believe and trust God. 
People haven't changed. People haven't changed. It's ridiculous. His mercy, his grace, I don't know how he does it. He's truly God. <laughs> He's truly God. I don't know how God has the mercy, but thank God he does because we all have been rebellious and stubborn at some time. We all have, but I hope not this much. Amen. Only a Muslim can be, I mean, just let's be honest. Only a Muslim can be this stubborn. Those are the ones that are going to come against Jerusalem. Okay, so if they don't come up, is grace going to cover them? No. Is the new covenant going to cover them? No. They will be punished by receiving no rain. And in verse verse 18, if the family of Egypt, Gentiles, does not go up to Jerusalem to keep the seats of tabernacles, to enter Jerusalem, then no rain will fall on them, Egypt, a national judgment, even after Jesus comes back. It will be the plague with which the Lord Jesus smites the nations, nations who do not go up to celebrate the fiesta of tabernacles. And this will be the punishment. You know what that means? Yep, they're still going to be in rebellion. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate Feast of Booths, the fiesta of tabernacles. Does this sound like that this is a Jewish holiday that we are observing? There's absolutely no verse, zero, in the Bible that says that this is for the Jews only. It never was for the Jews only. At any time in history, it has never been for the Jews only. Even the New Testament says the Greeks came up to keep the feet. What three times? Feet. Yeah, three times it says that these people, even the Gentiles, right, those that came against Jerusalem, that's the Gentiles, and the family of Egypt. So, in all the nations, anybody, anybody that still continues to be like, we don't have to do this. We don't have to have any works. We don't have to obey God. We don't have to keep the commandments. We don't have to believe the Old Testament. They will be punished. The Feast of Tabernacles worships Jesus Christ. Why why does it say that they're coming to keep the feast? To worship the king. The feast of tabernacles worships the king. This is not old covenant stuff. This is new covenant. It was always about Jesus. It was never about Moses. It's always been about Jesus, even in Old Testament times. Look at Ezekiel 39. 
Ezekiel chapter 39. Talking about how life is going to be on earth during the millennium after Jesus comes back. That's what we're focusing on today. Ezekiel chapter 39. Now, previously in chapter 38, you can read it later. In chapter 38, it talks about the invasion. How Iran, Russia, China, a bunch of other nations, Gentile, Islamic, and common nations, communist nations and Islamic nations, all gather up to pick on the United States and on the Jews on Israel. And we need to understand, like I've said many times before, this is not invasion of Jerusalem only. And it's not invasion of Israel only. It is invasion of the United States. It will be invasion of Australia. It will be invasion of Canada, of South Africa, of New Zealand, of any and all of the British Commonwealth and Israel plus America. Where do I get that? Because look at how on Jacob's deathbed, Jacob was renamed Israel before his deathbed. But on his deathbed, he laid hands on his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, in the book of Genesis, I think chapter 48. He laid hands on Manasseh and said, you shall become a great nation. You, your descendants, your children. He laid hands on Ephraim, not in that order, but he laid maybe. But he laid hands on Ephraim and said, "You shall become a great multitude of nations." Israel is not one nation; it's many nations. So the invasion is an invasion of many English-speaking people throughout the world that are going to be invaded by Russia, China, and Iran. Now, that happens in chapter 38. Chapter 39, verse 1 says, And you, son of man, talking about Ezekiel, prophesy against Gog. Gog is President Putin. That's who that is, President Putin. And say, Thus saith the Lord G. Behold, I am against you, O God, Putin, prince of Rosh, Moscow, and Tobol. Verse 2. And I will turn you around, Putin, drive you on, and take you from the remotest parts of the north, from Russia, the remotest part of the north. That is Russia and Siberia. So, and bring you against The mountains, more than one mountain, the word mountain means, the word mountains means nations in prophecy. Anytime you deal with prophecy, the word mountains is prophetic language of nations. Israel is more than one nation. So God is going to bring President Putin of Russia against the mountains the nations, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Israel. Verse 3, And I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. This is where people misunderstand it and say, 
God gives Israel immediate victory. They jump to conclusion. They look at this verse and say, well, he's going to strike down his missiles, which that is what it's talking about, his bow and arrow of Russia, his missiles. But we got to understand, he is not saying here that God is just going to bring Putin, Russia, China, and Iran, to attack Israel unsuccessfully. That's not what it's saying. Because we already read that the city will be captured. And then Revelation 12, verse 2 says the holy city will be tread underfoot for 42 months. So we know God is not going to give Israel a victory in one day in World War III. It just ain't going to happen. So verse 3 is talking about the last days of the great tribulation, of the wrath, the last days of World War III, just uh, before Jesus comes and or perhaps on the day that Jesus comes. Remember, we read previously in Zechariah that said that uh, Jerusalem or Judah will battle, right? Remember that? It said in Zechariah 14 that Jerusalem will battle in that day. Well, this is giving Judah a last-minute victory, a last-day victory, a one-week, one one-month, whatever victory. He starts, God turns the war around within the final days, weeks, and months of the tribulation. So verse 3, keeping in mind that verse 3 is talking about the end of the war as it nears the coming of Jesus Christ and the day of his return. Verse 3, I will strike your bow from your left hand, talking about the missiles and his power and his authority that he has had over the nations and dash down your arrows from your right hand. Verse 4, and you, the president of, of Russia, will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you, and I will give you... Here is what's going to happen to Putin. I would give you as food to every kind of raptor bird, predatory bird, and beast of the field. He's going to be eaten by the raptor birds. President Putin is what's going to be happening to him. Verse 5, you will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord Jesus. And I will send fire upon Magog, talking about Russia and China. I will send fire upon Gog, Magog, Russia, and China, and those who inhabit the coastlines, supposedly in safety up to this moment, and they will know the IMG. Like I said, there's no, no such thing as an atheist during the Great Tribulation. They will know that I am G. They will know it's God doing this because they're going to see fire and brimstone come from heaven. They will know the IMG. Verse 7, my holy name. So it's not know that I am the Lord, because that's been added, changed. The word the did not even appear in the original scripture in that verse. The word the you can just cross out because it was not in the original scripture. They will know that I am G. My holy name. Name, 
I will make known to these Gentiles and in the midst of my people Israel, through Israel, through the two witnesses, through the 144,000, through the great multitude, Israel will come to know the name of Jesus. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. Right now they are profaning the name of Jesus, saying Jesus is pagan, saying Jesus is an abomination, that we shouldn't use the name of Jesus. And Assad will, I'm pretty sure, outlaw the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is going to come back and say, that's it. No more profaning my holy name. Now, the Assyrian Antichrist is not going to profane the name of Yahshua. Those are Syrian words. Yah, Yahweh, Yahshua. Those are Assyrian words. They don't profane those names. Not even now. They only profane the name of Jesus in the Middle East. They only profane the name of Jesus that you, you, you're not allowed to accept Jesus' name. And it says, And the nations will know that I am G, the Holy One in Israel. Verse 8, Behold, it is coming and it shall be done, declares the Lord Jesus. That is the day which I have spoken. Verse 9, Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel those that are left, those that remain, those that survive the great tribulation, will go out and make fires with, with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears. For seven years, they will make fires of them. This is talking about during the millennium that the human people, flesh and blood humans, who survived the great tribulation, will burn all the weapons of war. Guns and swords and missiles and whatever of a weapon of war that it takes seven years to rid the earth of all the weapons of mankind. Seven years. That's amazing. Praise God. Now this ain't spirits and angels that's going to be doing this. This is labor. This is physical flesh and blood labor. Verse 10. And they would not take wood from the field or gather wood far from the forests, for they would make fires with the weapons. Yeah, can you imagine sitting around a campfire to keep warm, <laughs> melting <laughs> metal? <laughs> but they're going to do this. Yeah. Well, these people, flesh and blood, that remain, they're going to be doing labor and still be seeing on earth. And know, these people did not make it in. And they still didn't repent, even during their wrath. Perhaps this is still part of their judgment, even into the millennium. And it says, and they would take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord Jesus. Now look at verse 11. On that day, I will give God, Putin, a burial ground after the birds have had somewhat of a feast. They're going to leave some. 
There will still be some of Putin's body still left, and I will give him a burial ground there in Israel. Putin, who is a Russian, will be buried in Israel. The valley of those who pass by the east of the sea, and it will block off those who, who would pass by. So they will bury Gog there with all of his horde, his army, and they will call it the Valley of Hamagog, which I'm not sure how it really should be translated, but that's the way it shows here. In verse 12, for seven months, the house of Israel, the word house of Israel means those that are not Jews. Because the house of Judah would be the Jews. But the house of Israel are Israelites by blood, but they are not Jewish. That's the difference between the house of Judah and the house of Israel. If it just said Israel without the word house, then it could be Jews or non-Jews, either one, as long as they're Israelites. But this is specific of being non-Jews but still Israel. Because you have to look up all the places where it says house of Judah and house of Israel. And it says um, that for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them, the Russians, in order to cleanse the land from the Russians who had been invaded the land. So they're going to cleanse the land of Israel from the Russian troops. Verse 13, it takes seven months to bury the invaders. Seven months during the millennium. Verse 13, and that's labor, burying the dead people with shovels. That is labor that is done by flesh and blood humans. Verse 13, even all the people of the land will bury them. So all the people, everybody that's still flesh and blood will be burying the dead. And it will be to their own renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord G. And they were set apart men who would constantly pass through the land, burying those who were passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground in order to cleanse it. And at the end of the seven months, they will make a search. As those who pass through the land pass through and anyone, and anyone sees a man's bone, then he will set up a marker by it until the buriers have buried it in the valley of Hamagod. And even the name of the city will be Hamanah, so they will cleanse the land. Now, verse 17 backs up a little bit to the actual day of the Battle of Armageddon. Again, backs up before the burying. Verse 17 backs up to the actual day of the Battle of Armageddon. As for you, son of man, Ezekiel, thus saith uh, the Lord G, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field and say, assemble and come. Gather from every side to my sacrifice which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountain of Israel, and you will eat flesh and drink blood. Now, this is not teaching us that we still got to do animal sacrifice. For one thing, it's not a sacrifice of animals. It's a sacrifice of humans, of the wicked, 
of the Russians, of the Iranians, those that came against Israel, the invaders, that God is telling Ezekiel, speak to the birds and to the animals to come and partake in the great supper of God, Revelation 19. Come to the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the enemy, of the invaders. So it's a sacrifice in that way. Verse 18, you, the animals, will eat the flesh of the mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, presidents, as though they, as though, that they were animals, as if the wicked people were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, which are the four specific animals that had been sacrificed only on the Day of Atonement every year. Only on the Day of Atonement would these four specific animals be sacrificed. Now, here, it's not actually those animals, but it's the wicked men who are destroyed on the day of the battle Armageddon as if they were these animals, these four specific animals, and all of them fatlings of Bashal. Verse 19, so you eat fat, the birds will eat fat until you're gutted, and drink blood until you're drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. You will be gutted at my table with horses and chariots, with charities, with mighty men, all the men's war, declares the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, for I will set my glory among the nations, meaning that he will actually reign in Jerusalem, not in heaven, but in Jerusalem, among the nations. And all the nations will see my judgment. They will see Jesus sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, and which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel, not just Jews, will know that I am G, their God, from that day onward. And the nations, talking about Gentiles, when it, says, when it just says nations, that's Gentiles, will know that the house of Israel, Americans, Australians, Canadians, went into exile, had been taken as prisoners of war during the tribulation for their iniquity, for their sin, for breaking the commandments, for breaking the seventh day, for not keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, their iniquities. They went as prisoners of war. They were taken exile during the tribulation for their iniquities because they acted treacherously against me. And I hid my face from them, meaning that he did not answer their prayers, that he did not come and deliver them, that he did not give them uh, immediate deliverance from the war, that he did not give them immediate victory in one day like everybody's teaching. I hid my face from them. And so I gave them into the hand of their adversaries. Right here, again, proofs that he will not give Israel one day victory, but rather he's going to give Israel into the hand of their adversaries. And all of them fell by the sword. Verse 24, according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them. This is a just, just judgment. God doesn't want to do any of this, but the people are so wicked, so lawless, so rebellious, 
so much against the truth and against God that it's going to be a very just punishment. Regardless of how bad it's going to be, it is what they are going to deserve. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them and hid my face from them. But he does not hide his face from those who seek him and love him. Amen. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, Israel, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, not just the Jews only, but on the Americans, on the Australians, He will have mercy. There's that word mercy. He will have mercy on us. He will give us the final victory. The final victory belongs to Israel and the Americans against the Russians and the Chinese because they have transgressed as well. And they will get their punishment. The Russians and Chinese and Iranians will get their punishment because because in the final days, weeks, months, God will turn the war around and we will get the ultimate victory and the Russians will be buried in that valley that it was talking about and the Iranians will be buried. Amen. And I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. And they will forget their disgrace and all their treachery, which they had treacherated against me, performed against me. When they live, when they live securely in their own land with no one to make them afraid anymore. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, where they had been taken captive, then I shall be sanctified among them in the sight of many nations, the Gentiles. Then they will know that I am G, their God. It's, what it means is the Gentiles will know that Jesus is the God of Israel because he gave Israel the final victory. Because I made them, the Israelites, go into exile among the Gentiles and then gathered them again to their own land. So. He's going to set an example of us to the Russians, to the Chinese, to the Iranians. Yeah, he is their father. He did discipline them because he disciplines and chastises those he, who he loves. And he and they're going to eyewitness that God did chastise America, that God did chastise Australia and Canada and South Africa, that he is their God. Amen. And brought them back and restored them. Once they did repent, I don't... I don't have any hope for America to be saved before the tribulation because I know what the Word of God says, how it's going to happen. So I don't pray in vain for God to save America now. 
because this is going to happen, and this is what it's going to be, and we can't change it. This is the way it's going to be. We cannot change this. Now, where it talks about in 2 Chronicles 7:14, where it says that if my people pray, if my people repent and pray, I will restore their land. People are taking that out of context because the context of that is to people that lived thousands of years ago. That if you pray and if you repent, that I will not bring the invasion upon you or I will bring you back out of Babylon. That was the context. We're living in a different time now. And at any other time in history, and even now, if people would pray and repent, yeah, he would deliver us in our land. But the fact is that the people are not going to repent. And we have to just face that reality and stop having an imaginary fairy tale desire that, yeah, America is going to repent. Let's wake up. Come to reality. America is not going to repent. We have to live in reality. And so we have to face the fact that sooner or later the door has to close. Sooner or later the thousand years has to start. Has to. And and so America must fall. America has to fall. America has to be chastised. America has to be punished so that we can repent. So that we will repent. That is the way it's going to be. If I had lived 200 years ago, surely I would be preaching, let's pray for our nation. Let's pray that we repent and that God would save us. But I'm not living 200 years ago. I'm living at the doorstep to the great tribulation. And I have to live in reality and pray in reality and not pray a fairy tale prayer. We have to face reality. And it says here that he will restore us eventually to our land and will leave none of them there any longer. Verse 29, and I will not hide my face from them any longer for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord G. You know what that means? Joel 2, that I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh, that they would see dreams and visions and speak and tongues and so forth. That means that during the tribulation, after the war comes, people are going to start repenting. People are going to start truly, finally, one of these days during the Great Tribulation, after the chastisement, after the Father starts spanking his children, after the Father starts spanking his children of America and Israel, people will finally say, okay, I will behave myself. I will behave now. I will behave now. And they will finally repent and be baptized, and receive the Spirit of God. I will pour out my Spirit. means there is a revival coming. There is a revival coming to America and the world, but not until after they are carried away as prisoners of war, 
then, as they are in those concentration camps, they will be on their knees praying. And they will repent, and God will bring them out of the concentration camps, and God will bring them out of the nations that they were driven to and save them and give them the Holy Spirit after they have finally repented that we need that great tribulation. Let's not pray it away. We need this more than ever before. We need this great tribulation. If you want to save America, pray that God will spank America. Amen. So I'm talking to all the patriots out there because I've had to deal with patriots a whole lot. All these Donald Trump patriot people, they have a good imagination. Good imagination. Donald Trump will save America just like Mitt Romney saved America. And there was a great revival when Mitt Romney was the last president. And Mitt Romney brought in revival in America. But the prophecy of Pat Robinson and prophecy of uh, what's the guy that runs the, oh yeah, Bob Jones. Bob Jones University. Mitt Romney will win and America will be saved and a great revival will take over the land. It's not going to happen. Did not happen with Mitt Romney. Will not happen with Trump. And will not happen with Clinton. That will happen with the invasion. That is the way it's going to happen. No other way. It's written in Scripture. This is the way the revival will come after the invasion. So I know a lot of this is um, difficult to take in because some of it you've never heard before, and it goes against the grain of not only traditional beliefs, but against the grain of what we would like to see. You know, we would like to see, I would like to see America repent and prosper and be blessed by the hand of God. But I know what the Bible says is going to happen, and I have to just accept it. And so hopefully this helps you understand the great tribulation and the wrath and the coming of the Lord and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Millennium. So I know we covered a lot of ground today. Let me overlook my notes to make sure there's anything. Now, the, the next sermon that we will be broadcasting will be on the seventh day of the week. Uh, today is what they call Sunday, the first day of the week. So we'll be broadcasting again on the seventh day of the week, which will also be the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which will be a high holy day, a day of rest, not only because it's the seventh day of the week, but because it's also the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then, just like this weekend, we'll have services both Saturday and Sunday next weekend because Sunday will be the last great day, the eighth day of the feast, which represents new heaven, new earth, paradise. Uh, Is there any questions here? Okay. So, thank you for listening and If you've never heard me before, or even if you have, 
I encourage you to check out the ministry website, isawthelightministries.com, and meet us back here Saturday at 2 o'clock Eastern Time on this broadcast. Now, you can follow me on TalkShoe. If you're on TalkShoe listening, you can click a button to remind you of the broadcasts. So you can do that on TalkShoe, and you can listen over the phone, and you can also listen to this broadcast again later on because all the broadcasts are automatically saved, um, automatically give it five minutes after the broadcast, five, ten minutes after the broadcast. Hopefully it will be saved by the computer system automatically. Then you can listen to this and yesterday and last week and last year's sermons anytime you want at your convenience, anytime you want. But the live broadcast is 2 o'clock next Saturday and Sunday. So thank you for listening. Yeah. Yeah, you can download uh, also as a podcast. You can download it to your computer. So you can download it one time on your computer. Then you can listen to it as many times as you want without using your Internet data if you download it like that. Because you'll use your Internet data as you download it the one time. But then after that, you can just listen on your computer without using your data a second time. You can listen to iPad and iPhones through uh, the podcast apps on there. And there's instructions at TalkShoe.com as, as well as on I Saw the Light Ministries. And check out both of those websites for instructions. So all of this in Jesus' name, and may Jesus be glorified and the Father be glorified through Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.